Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Energy transfer is the most important element in making an effective kill. Or is it? Hi everyone, Ron Spomer with Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. And I've got some interesting questions and answers from people, good people, who are keeping me on my toes. And this is a correction from Travis. And he is arguing with me about the article I did on killing the energy killing myth. Because I think energy is largely a myth when it comes to taking animals. So this is what Travis writes me. You're right and wrong. Any bullet that can make a hole will eventually kill an elk or any other animal. However, transfer of energy is what effectively and humanely kills the target. The ability of the ammunition to transfer its energy to the target's soft tissue and vital organs is what effectively and humanely makes the lights go out. I disagree. (laughs) Travis, respectfully, I disagree. Travis continues, if your ammunition penetration fails to transfer its energy, dumps its energy, Will penetration extremely deep? It will penetrate extremely deep. However, a long hole, the width of a 30 caliber or even a 45 caliber bullet, will not humanely turn the lights out. And I disagree again. <laughs> Energy transfer is the most important element in making an effective kill. Ballistics and the physics remain constant. The platform, the ammunition, or the game can change. Okay, they can't. Oh, I didn't understand that last sentence. At any rate. Here is an answer that I typed up for Travis. Travis, I have seen evidence supporting your contention that physics remain constant, but I respectfully take exception with your other claims. First, not every bullet that makes a hole eventually kills an elk or any animal. In many cases, the hole closes, it heals, and the animal lives. Ballistics change based on the muzzle velocity, the ballistics coefficient of the bullet, the temperature, the elevation, the winds, the distance from the equator, the elevation, etc. But 
I think what you're meaning is that the basics of ballistics remain constant, right? I.e., we use the above parameters to calculate trajectory so that I'm being a little bit facetious here on that one. But no, my real agreement, my disagreement with your contention involves that energy transfer point. In my experience, it's not transferring the energy that kills so much as the bullet ripping, cutting, and tearing vital organs. The exception is when the said bullet strikes the nervous system. And in that case, something as weak as the 29 grain 22 short will suffice. As elephant hunters and colors with vast experience have learned, if you miss an elephant's brain by an inch, and it doesn't matter if your bullet is Bell's 173 grain from a 275 Rigby or if it's a 500 grain solid from a 470 Nitro Express, the elephant won't die if you miss the brain. As Pandoro Taylor detailed with his TKO formula, it will be knocked unconscious for a variable period, but then it will recover and depart. Now, we could say that those bullets missed vital organs, which is true, but their energy didn't. Those bullets remained in the skull. They radiated incredible quantities of energy to the brain, the most vital organ of all. And yet, well, I can regale you with anecdotes of animal after animal absorbing hits from 300 magnum, 7 millimeter magnum, 54 caliber muzzle loaders, 45 70s, etc., etc., and they not only ran off, but required additional shots, even though the first one or two didn't exit and dumped all of its energy in them. So another way to think of this is the gut shot that never exits, yet it doesn't kill for hours, sometimes days. All of the energy is absorbed by the animal, doesn't die. So a better example might be the broadhead. Virtually no energy, yet remarkably quick death due to hemorrhaging. I think I know what you mean by massive bullet energy breaking vital vital organs like the heart and the lungs and the liver, Travis. But in autopsy after autopsy, I have seen that tissues in the secondary wound channel, that broader area impacted by the energy transfer, but untouched by the actual bullet or parts thereof, that appears undamaged. I credit this to the tissue elasticity, and I think you can easily understand this. Even in a ballistic gel block, you'll see the radiating waves of energy transferring through that block. But when the bullet has stopped or passed through, that temporary wound cavity nearly remains undetectable. The only torn gelatin is where the bullet was touched against it. So, we might also consider human boxers. They take body blow after body blow, even face and head hits, and they don't go down. On rare occasions, a particular blow will tear a liver or a kidney or something and rupture something internally. I have read that Rocky Marciano's punch was measured at 2,000 foot-pounds. That's about what a 100-grain 243 Winchester carries at the muzzle. Yet we know that a hit from that will be a lot more likely to kill than, than any boxer's blow because the bullet will tear vital tissue whether the energy stays inside or some passes out with the bullet exiting. Anyway, that's how I analyze this stuff, Travis. Whether you and I agree or not doesn't really matter so long as each of us uses the cartridge and bullet we think most effective and then in such a way that it is effective. So here's wishing you quick, clean kills every time and joy in all of your outdoor pursuits. Thanks for writing in and making us think.
All right. So you guys are welcome to weigh in on this too, but really that sums up my experience and my research for all of these years. I just don't see where the energy transfer has done all that much. The tissue just is too elastic. It absorbs the energy and somehow comes through unless it gets ripped and torn by the projectile. Okay, here is one from one of our patrons on Patreon. This is Paul. He says, Ron, I wonder if you might have some advice to help me. Uh, I don't want to make a mistake here, he says. At the beginning of 2020, I purchased a Ruger American Go Wild. I guess that's the name of that particular model of rifle. It has a 16-inch barrel chambered in 6.5 Creedmoor. I was going to use it with my nephew on his first deer hunt next year. He's been practicing with the gun, and he shoots it quite well. Well, this year, I decided I would test the rifle on deer to have a better idea of its terminal performance. Obviously, I'd like the kid to have the best chance for success. Well, that's good, Paul. I was shooting Hornady Precision Hunter ammunition with 143-grain ELDX bullet going 2,583 feet per second at the muzzle. I was able to harvest a mature doe with this rifle. Now, the shot was 89 yards, and it penetrated fully through both lungs, about two inches behind the shoulder. I gave her about an hour before I started on the blood trail. She ran about 200 yards, and at the end of the blood trail, she stood up and began to run off. Fortunately, I was able to bring her down with a second shot. I would have expected a double lung shot to be a bit more effective with a cup and core bullet like the ELDX. I guess my question is, what could I do to increase the lethality of a short-barreled rifle like my Ruger? I think you're onto it right there, short barrel. Maximum range, 200 yards. I don't expect he'll shoot past 100 yards. I'm thinking of loading a 120-grain TTSX bullet, and they're increasing my velocity by roughly 200 feet per second. The increase in weight retention should compensate for the loss of mass, right? Ah, uh, yes, I think you're on to it, Paul. I think what you're suffering here is that, that short barrel and the reduced energies in the bullet. <laughs> here I go talking about energies after I just said which really didn't matter that much. But the energy matters in the expansion of the bullet. So even though you were using a fairly soft cup and core type bullet with that ELD um, X bullet, I don't know that your energies were high enough on a lung shot to get full expansion. That might have been what was going on. Now, some might say, how can you possibly put a bullet through the lungs of a deer and not have it expire within at least a minute or two, let alone, would you say how long you went for an hour or something? It was crazy. All that I can say about that is crazy stuff happens. I have heard many stories over the years of animals that appeared to be perfectly hit in the vital zone and were uh, unrecovered. Uh, including an elk that was beautifully shot right behind his shoulders and it went down and they waited for it to expire and it got dark and they went back to find it and it had gotten up and moved off. You know, what what happens? Can a bullet penetrate the lungs and heart area without hitting vital tissues and organs or not do enough hemorrhaging damage? I guess it can happen. Um, I once shot with a 270 Winchester, a nice lung shot. That deer went and went and left no blood trail. We found one speck of blood in fresh snow. But we were able to follow the tracks in the snow the next morning. We couldn't go at it that evening because there were other hunters where the deer had gone. And the outfitter didn't want us going in there and messing it up for them, which I could understand. And it was bitter, bitter cold, so we knew the meat would be okay. When we got back in the morning and tracked it, it had gone a good 200 yards. And when I opened that deer up, it was like soup inside. So there were vital organs were just completely destroyed. Yeah, that deer had not only gone 200 yards, but it had bedded. And it was lying frozen in its bed. 
So it must have taken a fair amount of time for it to expire. And yet it was essentially lung soup. As graphic as that sounds, it just tells you how hardy these animals are. And it's just amazing what they can do to survive. So it just may have been one of those flukes. But I would look where you're looking. And that is a lighter bullet that you can drive more quickly. The higher muzzle velocity will help a lot by increasing your chances of bullet expansion. Now, that tip triple shock bullet is going to open, clear down to the base. When those pedals flare out, you get beautiful expansion and you get it quickly. But it is not going to break into pieces, so you can expect complete penetration in most cases. Uh, and then if you do have to take a bit of an angled shot, you can trust that bullet because of its high weight retention to uh, reach the vitals from just about any angle. So that could be a pretty good option for you. I would definitely try that. But yes, I think it's that short barrel that's probably costing you because of the lost feet per second that are going on there with a, a cartridge that's not all that fast to begin with. So I hope that works out for you. That's kind of, I think I'm. you're on the, the same track that I am on that one. And I think that will probably be your solution. And if the TTSX bullet doesn't seem to work for you, try another lightweight bullet that is a bit more frangible and maybe that will do the job. All right, here are some questions the team dragged up for me. Let's see. Hmm. So Colin asks, what is the best quality scope? Wow, that's a big, broad question, Colin. I would like to give you an absolute answer, but I really can't because there are so many good scopes out on the market these days. But I can tell you this about scopes and brand names and such. I don't believe that any scope manufacturer has a corner on the market, has superior knowledge that others are lacking. There was a time when this was the case. Some uh, manufacturers discovered new things uh, about scopes, and they had a leg up on the competition until they also figured it out. These days, it seems like almost everyone in that business understands what it takes to make a high-quality scope. At that point, it's just a matter of, how much money do we want to be able to charge for this scope to make it and sell it? Do we want to make the absolute finest we can and have it cost three or $4,000? Or do we want to make one that's more affordable so we can sell more? So you're always going to find those variations in scope quality. The materials that they use, how many coatings they put on the lens to increase light transfer, lots of different things like that. I think that's what it, it behooves you to learn, to know, and to understand is that what makes for an effective scope. You want good optical quality, but I think more important is good performance quality, um, good engineering and materials to withstand the rigors of a scope on a hunting rifle in case it is dropped, but it, it needs to withstand the recoil shot after shot after shot because that can wear parts out in a scope. There are moving parts in there. The erector tube, when you're dialing your magnification, you have springs. The uh, recoil is absorbed by those springs that press against the, the uh, tube inside, and all of those things can eventually wear out. So you do want good quality construction that way. The more money you pay, the better that construction should be. But there are some good bargains out there um, that really do have good high-quality durable scope construction, they might fringe, um, they might skimp a little bit on the optical quality. But I have always maintained that you don't need the highest optical quality in a rifle scope the way you do in a spotting scope or a binocular. Those true, uh, two instruments 
are designed for finding your game and seeing it very well. Whereas the rifle scope's main job is to direct your bullet to the target. It's a glorified front sight. So it needs to be rugged, dependable, durable, and always keep your bullets landing at the same place. You can't have it wandering around. So I make durability number one. And then uh, I think brightness probably, you know, you want to be able to see that image. You want to have it in focus. But boy, I got to tell you, over the years, I've had some scopes that were not all that bright and were not all that sharp. And yet I was able to make every shot with them because they kept the reticle where it needed to be at all times. It was just good, dependable, rugged scope. That said, I do like a nice bright scope. Who doesn't? But within your budget, you need to consider all these things. So rather than ask what's the best quality scope, I think you're going to have to do some research on it. Um, Really have to dig into this stuff. There's just no shortcut. You know, I could say scope Z from brand X is the absolute best or something, but then someone else might have a different opinion and they might be right because I haven't tested every scope in the world. There's lots and lots of them out there. And they're also being made with lots of different brand names. And some of these new ones seem to have just as higher quality as the older established brands. What's going on there? Well, it's a new company starting up and they've learned the ropes. They know what they need to put into a scope to make it match up to the quality competition. They're lowering their prices a bit because their name is unknown. So you might find a bargain there. But you also might find a lemon (laughs) because that's entirely possible. So it's... uh, It's a bit of a crapshoot, but generally, if you know the parts and you work with those parts and examine the optical quality and compare it against other scopes in the same situations, the same lighting and stuff, you begin to see the differences. So I think that's the best I can tell you for now. You might want to check my YouTube channel and my blogs on my website, ronspomeroutdoors.com, because I do have several blogs and videos that detail more about scopes what's in them, and what makes them work. It's an interesting study, but it's really fun to know because then you have confidence when you buy a scope that you know what you're getting. It's like buying an automobile or a chainsaw or anything else. If you really know that product, you feel confident in making the judgment call. So that's what you have to do, I think, with scopes. Good question, though. All right. Um, This is from a podcast of mine was about a cartridge that deserves a second chance. Oh, yes. Which cartridges deserve a second chance or a second life? And this uh, gentleman, Hadley, asks, can they make larger modern rim fires to hunt larger game with, say, a 30 caliber rim fire or even a 338? Okay, that's an interesting question. And yes, they can make them, but will they? No, they will not. And here's the reason why. Rim fires are fairly weak. They have to be. They cannot withstand the chamber pressures that center fires take. And that's because they are ignited by a priming compound in the rim that is struck by the firing pin and squashed against the breech of the rifle. So you've got to have the copper and or brass of that cartridge case weak enough in the rim to get squeezed together to set off the primer. That further weakens it at the strike of the primer so that the gases could blow out of that hole and then get back into your face or something. So you just cannot get your pressures really high. And that's why they invented the centerfire cartridge, because then you can. So I will tell you that, no, I do not think you're going to get any larger calibers in a rimfire. What's the point? 
you do them in the center fire and they're going to be able to drive them faster. Uh, even if they keep the pressures fairly low in those, um, I just don't think you're going to be messing around with rim fires. The highest pressure rim fire cartridge I know of is the 17 Winchester Super Magnum. And that one they pushed up getting close to, I think, by golly, I think it's getting close to 30,000 PSI. It might only be 25,000, but either one is getting pretty far, getting pretty high for pressures in a rim fire. And, uh, I don't know. That's the last one I've heard that's gotten that high of a pressure. Remains to be seen if they'll come up with some 20s or 22s that are that much pressure. But that's the story on the rim fires. All right. Here is Trapper Bob. And Bob saw a video I did on cartridge predictions. Oh, yes. <laughs> I was checking my crystal wall to see if I could figure out what sort of new cartridges might be coming down the pike. Trapper Bob asked this, what are your thoughts on solid copper bullets for Africa? I'm using a 7mm mag. It doesn't specify which one. There are several of them. Also, I'll be planes game hunting for kudu, zebra, wildebeest, etc. So, what are my thoughts on a solid copper bullet? First of all, let's clarify what you mean by solid copper bullet. I don't think you mean actually solid. You mean a hollow point, but all copper. So, a monolithic bullet. It's all copper or an alloy of copper. And then it has a hollow in the nose, and that should uh, use hydrostatic pressure, uh, hydraulic pressure to open the cavity. And this seems to be what happens every time. And we always go with Barnes bullets because that's what sort of started it all. And I have a lot of experience with those. And Barnes did some uh, slow-mo videos in which they shot a cherry tomato and an apple, some small fruits like that. And it's amazing. Here comes this TSX bullet, this hollow copper nosed bullet and it hits that little piece of fruit and exits fully expanded for people who say oh they don't expand just that little bit of water gets in there and at those incredible velocities it's going to open up and most people will say the you're going to get sufficient expansion with those kinds of hollow copper nosed bullets or all copper bullets with the hollow noses at around 1800 feet per second at the terminal velocity. You don't want to go much more slowly than that. It might not open. I've seen them open a little bit, but at under 2000, it starts to minimize. You don't get full expansion, but you do, still do get some. So yeah, I found that they work beautifully on, on planes game. I have used TSX, TTSX, the old, and the original Barnes X, the Hammer Hunters, which is a great copper bullet, and some from Norma, I think they were called the Kalahari or something. Those were all copper with a hollow nose. All of them worked and worked very well. Deep penetration and good expansion. Um, generally shoot through things on broadside chest shots, but I've used them for some raking shots on animals that were running away or something at a bad position. And you can trust that bullet to get through a lot of stuff to get into the vitals. And that often helps in Africa. So I would hardly recommend those. I think you'll do just fine. Um, most bullet manufacturers, ammo manufacturers now have some version of a copper bullet like that. So do a little bit of research and I think you'll come up one, with one that you'll be happy with. There are a lot of them out there. All right. Here's one from a best rifle scope buy video. Oh yes, I did one on what to look for in a rifle scope. Getting back to an earlier question here. I remember that when I was standing by my tractor showing a bunch of different uh, scopes and sort of explaining what to look for in a scope. That would be a good video for you guys to look at. So Dale asked, 
first he said, good information. So I must have said something, right? <laughs> then he asked, uh, do you review the scopes? I'm looking at either a Leupold VX6 or the Schmidt Bender PM2 for hunting out to say 600 yards. Any recommendations? Thanks. <laughs> Once again, I can't really recommend these specific scopes, guys, because I can't work with all of them and test all of them. I can tell you from vast past experience that loophole scopes are wonderful. I've just always had great, great luck with those. Extremely durable and rugged scopes. Uh, perhaps not the highest optical quality in the world, but as I mentioned earlier, I don't find that that's the absolute most necessary thing. But then again, there are some loophole scopes that are extremely well built optically as well. And I would guess the VX6 is getting up into that price point where they're probably really maximizing everything. Um, and the Schmidt and Benders, boy, they make, make some really great bright sharp scopes too. I haven't hunted that much with them. I've used uh, several times on uh, tested rifles where I'm on the range testing things, but I haven't used one extensively over years. That's where you start to see the durability things. Use the scope five, six seasons, shoot it a lot. Then you start to notice if it's going to hold up. And I haven't done that with the Schmidt Benders. But they do have a beautiful scope, and it seems to be very solidly built. They've always worked well for me. I am not familiar with the PM2. But as far as hunting out to 600 yards, shoot, any scope can pretty much do that. You know, back in the 50s and 60s, Jack O'Connor would sometimes shoot game at 600 yards with a 4X scope. <laughs> it doesn't say anything about durability, but it does say something about our fixation on super magnification these days. You really do not need all that magnification to get a crosshair centered on your game out to 600 yards. I will admit it helps. <laughs> it's a little more enjoyable to have the confidence of seeing that target that much larger. But I think, hey, either one of those scopes should do just fine at 600 yards or 500, four, whatever you want to use them for. You didn't specify what the magnifications were, but I'm sure they go up to at least 10x, probably significantly higher than that. And that should take care of it, no problem. So, yeah, check them out and uh, let me know what you think based on your experience with them. You will soon probably know more than I do about both of those scopes. All right, this is uh, from John. He asks, what is the purpose of these very bizarre cartridge restrictions in Iowa and in Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, and states like that? I think he's, he's talking about the uh, length limits and the straight wall cartridge stuff. We've been covering that a lot lately in reviewing the 350 Legend and uh, comparing it to a 3030. And uh, we did something recently on the 4570, another popular straight-walled cartridge. But good question. Why do these states have these what, <laughs> what John calls bizarre restrictions? And as I mentioned in an earlier podcast, it has to do with perceived safety of cartridges that don't shoot as far as modern bottleneck cartridges like the 270, 30-06, any of the modern deer hunting cartridges. They just, back when they were coming out with them in some of these more populated states, they were afraid, gosh, if these things can shoot for three, four miles, who knows where that bullet's going to end up. They sort of weren't giving us enough credit to think that we were going to make sure we had a safe background before we shot. But I think that's basically what it is. They're trying to limit the reach of those cartridges. And that's why they were slug states for a lot of time. A lot of states will say shotgun only, you have to use a slug. In some, you can use buckshot, which is really a poor alternative. But the slugs, it turns out, are a little bit more dangerous than high-velocity bottleneck cartridges with lighter bullets because the slugs are so heavy and they 
have so much momentum that they will ricochet and skip a lot and plow through a lot of stuff before they stop. Whereas a fairly light bullet from a 270 or a 243 Winchester hits a branch or something and sort of disintegrates. So uh, something to consider. But yeah, that's what's going on with those bizarre restrictions. This is from Drake. Hey, Mr. Ron, I was wondering what you would think would be the perfect cartridge. If you could design one, what would you make? I wouldn't make anything <laughs> because I think it already exists. We have got so many cartridges. And we had cartridges way back when that were more than capable of taking anything one wanted to take. But they couldn't necessarily do it with extreme precision at extreme distance. That's what's driving the new cartridges. And it was all made possible with the laser rangefinder. Prior to the invention of the laser rangefinder, it really didn't matter if you had bullets that were hyper-efficient ballistically and didn't deflect much in the wind and carried far, far down range because you didn't know if your target was at 350 yards or 425 yards or 600 yards or whatever you were guessing. And unless you know the precise distance, those drop charts that you develop aren't going to do you much good because after about 500 yards, the drops get to be so significant that if you misjudge the range by 20 is even as little as 10 yards, you're probably going to miss. So you really have to have your distance to target nailed within a yard either way. And that's what laser rangefinders do. So once those came online, people began thinking, wait a minute, I need a bullet that's going to reach farther. The magnums will give you more initial velocity, but if your bullet is aerodynamically inefficient, it will waste the potential. Whereas if you've got a long, sleek, high BC bullet, it saves its energy and keeps flying. And then you can take advantage of those known distances to your target. So they started revamping cartridges to more efficiently handle those long bullets. Fast twist barrels, long sleek bullets, shorten the cartridge up to allow the bullet to be seated out far enough to fit in the rifle's actions, et cetera, et cetera. That's what's going on. So I would say in a 6.5 right now, you're probably looking at the 6.5 PRC in a short action as being doing just about everything and anything you could expect a 6.5 to do. If you want to go faster than that, you jump up to the Magnums and you got a 6.5 300 Weatherby Magnum. You got a 26 Nosler. You sort of want to fall in between there. You've got the 6.5 uh, Weatherby, which is uh, like a 30-06, a little better than a 6.5-06. Lots of options out there. And in the 270s now, you've got the 6.8 Western, which is rolling along those lines. And in the sevens, my goodness, we've got so many sevens now out there. And the latest and greatest, of course, is the PRC version. The seven PRC will probably become, I would say, the new seven millimeter Remington Magnum. What that was in the 1960s, I think, is what the PRC version is going to be in the next 10, 20 years. I'm guessing, but it just has all the right numbers for that. So you can find the same thing with the 300s and the 338s. So I don't think we need a perfect cartridge. Besides, the perfect cartridge is also quite dependent on what you're hunting, where you're hunting it, the habitat, um, and all that sort of thing. So I don't think anyone can pick a perfect cartridge. But boy, we've got a lot of great cartridges to pick from already. So I think I can just find myself one that's going to work for most of the hunting that I do. Good question, though. Appreciate that one. 
Hey, Gary asks, is it possible to reload the 277 Fury at this time? If not, do you think it will be practical in the future? I'm concerned about separation of the brass and the steel portions of the cartridge. I think we addressed this once before, but in case I'm dreaming, I'll address it again. Because I recently spoke to someone at Sig Sauer, and they told me that they didn't even have any rifles out yet. There's a glitch in the system, or they're trying to fine-tune things. They're not quite getting the accuracy they think they should get, and they don't want to release anything prematurely. So even though we've been hearing about this thing for a good two, three years now, and the military, I guess, has accepted it as a new battle rifle, it is not available. No one else is chambering for it because I think they don't know if their rifles are going to be able to take the 80,000 PSI pressures. Now, a lot of guys have been saying, oh, no, no, the civilian version of this in the 277 will only be available in standard loadings at 65,000 PSI, same as the 270, the 22250, and a lot of other cartridges. They're not going to sell that 80,000 PSI ammunition. No, that's not true. I asked him about that, and they are selling that or they will be selling that, to go along with the rifles that are built to handle it. But right now, that rifle is not ready. I have also heard that there are some ammunition hand-loading components uh, out there. They're developing the dies and all the rest for that. How they're going to handle that brass steel connection, I don't quite know. I'm sure they're going to be resizing the brass portion of it, because that's why we want a brass cartridge. It expands and contracts again and you're able to resize it and fix it up so that you can load it again safely how the brat or the steel head is going to change that i'm not sure but i'm guessing that it's going to be possible because they are gearing up to do that so we're just going to have to wait and see what happens um i think it has a lot of potential um just as we went from high pressure cartridges in the old days of being maybe forty thousand cup or forty five thousand up to 25, 65, we got up to 65,000 by 1925 already with the 270. So that was a big jump up in pressure. And we've been working with that for a long time. And now we might just start to move up into 80,000. So time will tell. Hang in there, guys. The 277 Fury has yet to prove itself in the commercial market. All right, here's one from Extra, 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 Extra. Read all about it. Love your show, Ron, but the new cartridges do not impress me. I wish they would just bring back the fine quality and workmanship to the firearms industry. That would be something new to this generation. Well, Extra, Extra, I hear you on the uh, not being impressed by new cartridges. A lot of older guys, they call us either boomers or fuds, (laughs) don't appreciate that. But I do see some value in the new cartridges because of their aerodynamic efficiency, fast twist in the barrels, and then the bullets. So I think that is significant. I mean, who doesn't want an efficient projectile going down range instead of an inefficient one? That said, the old cartridges work just fine. (laughs) They've done the job for me. I've had a wonderful career using the old timers. But I do take exception with you suggesting that we no longer have fine quality and workmanship in our firearms industry. Here, I have to list not just cartridges and not just cartridge designs, but the cartridge itself. I think the ammunition manufacturers have really stepped up quality control. Uh, There's so much competition. It might be going downhill a little bit now because they're so desperate to get things cranked out and fill the demand. 
but they've all had to compete by really making some high-quality cartridges with bullets that we never had back in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, partition bullets and bonded bullets and hybrid bullets and copper bullets. And wow, we've gotten a lot better ammunition. And they were making match grade and they were really Im improving the tolerances through the whole thing. So I think we gained on that. But I also think we gained on the quality of our guns. I think we've got some incredible gun manufacturers in this country. There's a huge demand for inexpensive guns and they're bending over backwards to meet that. Some people say it's the, uh, race to the bottom. And to a degree, that's true, but I really don't subscribe to that because a lot of these really inexpensive rifles do seem to work awfully darn well. They feel fairly inexpensive. We could say cheap, I think, and be still accurate with that, that description where someone says it's the Mattel toy feel with the plastic stocks and all. But by golly, a lot of those, if not most of them, will shoot MOA with factory ammunition, which was something you had to spend thousands of dollars in a custom rifle to get even 15, 20 years ago. So the quality is going up in that regard. But if you're like me and you think of a quality rifle as having a beautiful walnut stock and beautiful wood to metal fit and finely finished and slick actions and everything works just perfectly, man, I was just recently at the uh, convention of the Dallas Safari Club. They're raising lots of money for wonderful conservation programs around the world. And they have all sorts of vendors coming in to display their wares. And I saw some absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous rifles. And there are, of course, some really expensive ones. But there are some that are remarkably inexpensive, too, that are still made with some pretty fine precision and high quality. Um, I was encouraged to see that Dakota Arms, remember the Dakota Firearms that went under with the Remington? Uh, when they went bankrupt, that was purchased by some investors and started up again under a new name. They couldn't use the Dakota name, but they're called Park West Arms. And I was encouraged to see that they are building the Model 76 and 97 and the Model 10. Uh, and they're building with beautiful quality once again. And then there are all sorts of independent gun makers like uh, Todd Ramirez is building beautiful guns and Ralph Martini, oh, there are just all kinds of them out there. Heim Rifles and Holland and Holland. And I met a, a father and son team from Germany who make absolutely outstandingly gorgeous, gorgeous rifles with some really unique designs. And, uh, and it's just impressive. So don't think that they're no longer out there because they are. Even the Marlin, the lever action, 4570, 336, uh, Ruger took that over. Uh, from Remington. They bought Marlin and they upgraded everything. And that rifle is better than ever. So the quality is there. The firearms industry, I think, is doing a wonderful job. You might want to snoop around a little bit and see what's going on. I think you're going to be impressed. Thanks for that extra, extra. And thanks to all of you for your questions, your corrections, and thanks for tuning in. This is Ron Spomer. I always appreciate you folks, especially the patrons who help us out and uh, send in their questions. We always get to you guys is quickly as we can, immediately answer your questions, but occasionally I will reread one online like I did today. So until the next time, this is Ron Spomer signing off on Honest and Shoot Straight.